looking at Psalm 112 this morning. As you may remember, if you were here last week, we looked then at Psalm 111. Those two together are a pair. And they are uh, not just identical in structure together, but as they are both acrostic poems. That is, they each have 22 lines, so they each, each line starts with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So these are very carefully crafted Psalms. These are not, as some psalms seem to be, uh, an almost stream of consciousness blurting out of, of concerns and worries or even praise to God as some psalms tend to go. These are very carefully crafted poems here. And so they're similar in structure, but they're also complementary in their themes. As we saw last week, Psalm 111 is about God. And Psalm 112 is about godliness. So to know the life that's described here in this psalm, you must first know the the God that's described in the previous one, which we saw last week. And if you know that one true God and His works of creation and of provision and of of redemption, then what might your own life look like? That's what this psalm says seeks to answer and to tell us. Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in His house, and His righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice, for the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray again this week that you would meet us here as you are the one who has called us to gather. And we are here in body and hopefully in, in mind and spirit as well. Father, would you cause that to be so? Would you enliven our souls so that we might see the beauty and the truth and the hope of your gospel here in this psalm, in this carefully crafted poem? Help us, Lord, to see what you have provided for us here and to glorify your name because of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Morgan Spurlock is a name that I expect a few of you know. Maybe you remember his name. He's a documentary filmmaker who about 15 years ago became somewhat known by his very daring experiment and documentary film that he made called Supersize Me. Morgan Spurlock had the idea somehow to to um, go and eat three times a day at McDonald's for 30 days. 
And he would eat nothing except for McDonald's food three times a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner for 30 days. Now, before he conducted this experiment, he knew that it would be somewhat treacherous for his health, and so he went to visit his doctor and got his doctor on board, I suppose somewhat hesitantly, as a doctor probably should be, when a patient comes and requests such a thing. But the doctor agreed, I'll see you each week as you go through this, uh, this experiment, and we'll see what happens to your body. And so three times a day, Morgan Spurlock went to McDonald's, and he called it supersize me because any time that he never requested it, but any time the, the clerk at the register offered, do you want it to be supersized, that is a large meal of McDonald's fare, he had to say yes. He could never turn down a supersize, and he had to eat everything that was given to him. And so his, his experiment began. And over the course of those weeks, the doctor would monitor his weight as it steadily rose and monitor his blood pressure as it steadily became unstable. And over the course of 30 days, he gained 25 pounds. His liver began to dysfunction, and he had the onset of depression by the time the 30 days was up. And he learned and demonstrated for all of us the truth that any nutritionist will tell you. You are what you eat. You know, if you eat too many carrots, then your skin will begin to turn orange or yellow. Or you could just come and stand on the stage here at the theater with these gold lights and the same effect begins to happen. <laughs> or if you eat too many tomatoes, I understand the same thing will happen. You'll begin to turn yellow or orange. I've not, not tried that. I've not experimented. I don't think that I will, but I love tomatoes. If you eat spinach, what will happen? I don't, will, will you turn green? I don't know. Maybe you should go home and try that and have a diet of spinach this week and see what happens. I'm sure you'll be healthier for it. But any nutritionist will tell you the nutritionist's wisdom. You are what you eat. I think the psalmist's wisdom is more important but similar. You are what you worship. Or maybe more accurately, you come to resemble that thing or those things which you worship. Psalm 115, if you were to look there, just a few psalms to the right of this one in your Bible, Psalm 115 tells us this. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. The psalmist is telling us that if you fashion and craft an idol after some worldly thing in this earth, you will come to resemble that idol. You will come to look like the thing that you worship. And every heart worships something or some things. And the object of your worship determines the shape of your life. If you worship, as, as I mentioned last week, if you worship people's opinions of you, then you will inevitably become as flaky and flippant as those opinions are. If you worship safety and security, then inevitably you will become fearful and suspicious of everything around you. If you fashion a so-called God out of anything in this world, and you do, then it will fashion you into its image. 
the wisdom of this pair of praise psalms, 111 and 112 together, is that the person who knows the one true God described in 111 will, little by little, gradually and assuredly, to some degree, know the blessings of godliness in this life. Indeed, as Paul wrote, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. But many people in our world, and maybe many people in this theater even, mistake godliness for morality. We so easily assume the street definition of godliness. If you were to ask somebody on the street, what does it mean to be godly? They'd probably give you some version of the old statement of don't smoke, don't drink, don't chew, and don't go with girls who do. Because that's just kind of the way that we default to think about what it means to be godly. But that's hardly even close remotely to what the Bible offers to us about godliness. What does godliness look like? It looks like a number of things here in this psalm. For one, it looks like delight. Look at verse 1. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Now, Psalm 111 had described the great work of God, as we saw last last week. And that psalm concluded with a, a very proverbial statement. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who practice it have good understanding. And now Psalm 112 picks up where that left off. Here is one who practices that fear. And how do they do it? With delight. With delight. The Hebrew poet often is going to use parallelism. That is, they're going to, to say the same thing twice, but in different ways. And you see some sense of that here in this verse. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord who greatly delights in his commandments. That is, to fear the Lord, this writer equates with to delight in what God has commanded for us. This psalmist is motivated to heed God's commands. But what has motivated him to do it? There are some common motivators, I can think of a couple of them, that that we tend to operate with in our daily lives. One of them is, worldly fear, and one of them is worldly gain. So, for example, worldly fear, if if that's the way that you tend to default and operate in in worldly fear as you think about God, then, then you kind of operate with this sort of undercurrent theme of, I better obey God, that ogre in the sky, or else he is going to get me. You're afraid in a worldly sense of God. And so that motivates you to go through the motions of following God's commandments, perhaps. Or worldly gain. You might have the undercurrent of thought in your own daily life of, if I do what God says, then I'll get something good as a result because of it. God owes me. And both of those things can be true motivators, and both of them actually you do find in the Bible at different places. I mean, it was Jesus himself who said, don't fear those who kill the body, but fear him who can 
kill and destroy both body and soul in hell. There's a sense of worldly fear in that expression, and it does motivate us. The Ten Commandments will tell us, honor your father and mother. Why? So that it will go well with you in the land, so that your days may be long in the land. You get something good as a result of obeying the commands. But if worldly fear and worldly gain are all that you have to move you to godliness, then you will never get there. Why? Because both of those things ultimately serve not God, but you, right? You avoid the fear, you gain the good thing, and therefore, to serve yourself, you obey the commandments. Neither of those things is the main motivator for the Christian life. Neither of them can produce Delight. Delight. What can? Knowing God. That's why Psalm 111 precedes Psalm 112, because the writer wants you to recognize that the one who really knows and recognizes the great and mighty and splendor-filled, majestic works of this God who made you and who has sent redemption for you, then you can delight Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Again, like last week, whether you're a Christian or not, you can and you do inevitably delight in the works of God and creation in this life. At some point along the way, you delight in what God has made. But Psalm 111 progresses from God's works of creation, which all can delight in, to God's works of provision for His people, which some who are not Christians perhaps could recognize and acknowledge. And then it progresses to God's works of redemption for His people. And only people who are inclined toward the gospel are going to recognize and delight in those works of redemption. But the progression continues on into the next psalm, into Psalm 112, because anyone can delight in God's works. But only the godly will delight in God's words. Derek Kidner is a, a, a scholar and a, a commentator on Old Testament texts like this one. And he describes this word commandments that the, that the writer used. He says it's a very practical word. And it refers to the fact that what's, what delights this person is not just God's will. That is, the things that you ought to do as, a, as God has willed it. But also, it's those things to which God has called you. Not just God's will, but God's call for you. That is, how God calls you to serve Him. So if God's attention to the remarkable details of creation brought about such splendor and majesty as Psalm 111 describes to us, then what about God's attention to me becomes the the natural progression of the godly person's thinking. If God has paid so much attention to the splendor and majesty of what He's created in this world, then what about me? How has God attended to me and called me to serve Him? And the result of that significance is delight. It's not that God calls you so much to accomplish some great thing but rather to reflect God's great character. 
And so godliness looks like something else. It looks like strength. Verse 2, his offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Verse 3, wealth and riches are in his house. The one who knows God and delights in reflecting God's character is blessed with the strength of godliness, both generationally and also practically. So verse 2 offers us one of many similar promises that you find in Scripture and especially in the Psalms that relate to God's commitment to successive generations. And I want to offer you a few others as well from other Psalms. So you you see verse 2 there, His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. This is a promise for successive generations. But hear these as well. Psalm 127, verse 3. Children are a heritage from the Lord. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the one who fills his quiver with them. That is, the Psalms promise us that a new generation in a family will be a great blessing. It brings difficulty. It brings stress and trial and trouble and hardship in many ways. It's hard to be a parent. It's hard to be a grandparent. It's hard to be an aunt or uncle who's attentive to your nieces and nephews. But Scripture promises that the next generation will be a great blessing to the one who fills his quiver, so to speak, with them. And then Psalm 25, verse 13. Who is the one who fears the Lord? His offspring shall inherit the land. You hear that promise? It's a very profound and significant promise that God gives to his people. And then Psalm 37, verse 26. I have not seen the righteous forsaken. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. And then Psalm 102, verse 28. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Do you hear the promises for the next generation? Godliness generationally looks like strength and it doesn't come about by you bowing up and being tough being some spiritually tough person with with your own self-generated bravado it comes about rather by God committing himself to the generations of his people now this is something in which we must together greatly appreciate the covenant baptism the scripture gives to us, which we celebrate in our congregation with quite some frequency, as many of you fill your quivers with these arrows. And it's a beautiful blessing for our congregation because it reminds us again and again of God's committed faithfulness to the generations of his people. And it's a great reflection of God's initiative with us, that God takes initiative with us. He pursues us. He comes for us. Even when we can't possibly come for Him, He comes for us. Now, I know that there are those among us who worry about about your own young adult children who perhaps seem to be straying away and not, as it seems, inheriting the land, as it were. But God's covenant promises we can't miss. God is committed to His people doesn't mean that baptism saves anyone, but it does mean that God is committed to his people for the next generation. 
many people in our generation don't want children. There's an article in the newspaper, I think just this past week, about that fact, that more and more young people are deciding that they don't want to have children for a variety of reasons. Maybe they feel like they can't possibly be good enough parents, or they can't possibly pay for what it will cost to have children in their home, or they just want to spend more time with their pets and with their friends. And it's a sad thing because they don't recognize the beauty and the strength and the power of God's promises to those who fear Him. There are those in the church, of course, who wish they could have children but but can't. And they struggle with the desire that that is a God-given and godly desire, and yet God doesn't bless them with children. Still take heart in God's commitment to the church family that He's building of which you are a part. God is committed generationally with strength, but there's also a practical strength to this as well. Despite the delight that the godly person knows, not all is ease and glee in their world. You know, the psalm will tell you, darkness will descend, verse 4. Bad news will come, verse 7. Adversaries will oppose, verse 8. But how does the godly respond to such things? Verse 7, he is not afraid. His heart is firm. His heart is steady. Trusting in the Lord, he will not be afraid. In other words, the practical strength of godliness is that true godliness equips one to suffer. It gives you ground on which to stand when suffering comes. Now, if again, if you were to ask someone on the street, about God. Tell me about God. What do you believe about God? Probably, more often than not, what you would hear would be some form of what theologians call deism. Deism. That is, there is a God who's out there, but that God, whoever he or she or it may be, is not interested in the details of the world. They just kind of, if they created the world, they just sort of set it spinning and left it alone. And they're just not involved in the the details of my life. But there's more to that as things have developed today. Christian Smith is a sociologist, I think at Notre Dame, who 12 years ago studied and continues to study these things among young people in our country. And he coined a term that many of you have heard by now, which he calls moralistic therapeutic deism. And he describes the, the observation that most of 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 the young people, the younger generations, and perhaps the older ones too, in this country at least, adhere to a religion that they don't call this, but he calls moralistic therapeutic deism. That is moralistic. The moral part of it is that the God who's out there just wants for you to be good and nice and fair, to be moral. The therapeutic part is that the God who's out there surely wants for you to be happy. Because what else would a God want for you if not to be happy? The deistic part is that that God is just not really involved in your life at all. And in such a view, you don't exist for God's glory. God exists for your convenience. And we all need to consider what parts of our lives reflect that sort of thinking. Because there's some point in your own life where you've grabbed onto some idol and you've, realized, you've not realized it perhaps, but you have practically formed yourself around this thing in such a way that you would suggest 
that God exists just for your convenience. Maybe it's your goals or your ambitions. Maybe it's your thinking that if I just behave right, then God will owe me something. But the problem with such a view is that there's no explanation for suffering. There's no equipping to endure the darkness and the bad news when it does come. The practical strength of godliness is this. You exist for God's glory. God made you for His own glory, and He may not prevent your suffering, but He will meet you in it because Christ suffered and was crucified, dead, and buried, and now is seated at the right hand of God. And the strength that that empathy provides leads to another godly trait, and that is this. Godliness, true godliness, looks like generosity. It looks like generosity. For one who knows the God described in Psalm 111, the resources abound by which the godly can be a blessing to all who are around them. Generously so. True godliness just can't contain the blessings that God gives. Verse 9 describes it directly. He has, this godly one, has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. Now that states it directly, that this one is generous and gives freely to those who don't have as much. That could be financial, but it could be a whole lot of other things too. And that direct statement is explained in two ways earlier in the psalm. Godliness, for one, looks like generos- generosity to other believers. So, verse 4, Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. Now, that statement could actually read like this. He arises in darkness like a light for the upright. He arises in darkness like a light for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It means that a Christian is a generous blessing to fellow Christians. That's a part of the Christian life. That's a part of godliness to which God calls us to be a blessing to one another, to fellow Christians. Godliness looks like generosity. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have lots of cash money in the bank. Maybe you do. And that should be an obvious example of a possibility that God has given you lots in order to give and share and be generous with lots. But it means, even more than that, that you've recognized the plethora of blessings that God has given to you to abound in your life of opportunities to bless other people, and you've sought to use them for your brothers and sisters in Christ. You've sought to use them when tragedy strikes and you come alongside because you can empathize with someone in their certain situation. You've sought to use those gifts when jobs are lost and discouragement sets in and trouble abounds and you can step in with a brother or sister to help them, to encourage them with a word that is on your mind from Scripture or from your own experience to give them strength out of your own generosity. But it also means that you're generous not just to Christians, but to to non-Christians, to unbelievers as well. Verse 5, It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. That is, in all affairs of your life, 
in your home, in your church, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in all of society where you are, in all of the affairs of your life, you seek generously to do justice, to do what is good for all who are near you. Sardar Ahmed Deen is a Pakistani man whose story fits right here. Sardar grew up in Pakistan in an impoverished neighborhood. He was born uh, horribly poor in a part of Pakistan. And when he was a, a young child, he came across some Christian missionaries who led him to Christ and taught him to read and, and helped him to gain an education. And he excelled in that education. He actually got to go to college. And he eventually gained a job working for the American embassy in Lahore, Pakistan. And that developed into a more and more privileged position for this young Christian man who could speak English and, and who had been educated by Americans and by the Pakistani culture in which he lived. And so he became a privileged, a privileged post in the, the American embassy. And eventually he moved to the United States with his wife and young children and worked here for a, no, a number of years, raised his own children here. But then he felt burdened for his own home neighborhood back in Pakistan. This man was a professing Christian, and he recognized that he, of all people, had an opportunity to go and to serve for the gospel in his own neighborhood back in Pakistan. And so he and his wife moved back. And there they planted churches, a dozen churches in Pakistan. And there he began, he began literacy centers and, and eventually built 30 literacy centers around Pakistan to, to teach children to read and to teach the Bible to all who would hear it. He began a medical clinic with doctors who would serve not just Christians, but Muslims who were the predominant neighbors in, in that city. He began a children's school, which in 10 years grew from 11 students to 1,600 students. The Muslim authorities in his area, in his city, began to recognize all the blessings that were abounding from this man's work, and they actually began to help him. They would do things like help to build and pave roads for him to his schools and his clinics and his literacy centers so that they would function more smoothly. And eventually, Dean became convinced that he needed to move to a more impoverished place than where he lived, and so... He and his wife put their home up for sale. How do you do that in Pakistan? They, they began to try to sell their house. And when their Muslim neighbors learned of it, they came to their house to protest. They said, you can't move away. And Sardar replied, he said, we're Christians. To move away from you would clean up the neighborhood, wouldn't it? And they said, no. Because you've been such a blessing to this place, please stay. They recognized that a godly man was in the neighborhood. And so the, that's the same is true for you and me. If true godliness prevails in your life, then how are you a blessing to your neighbors? Especially if they're unbelievers. Regardless of their religious convictions, regardless of their political convictions, regardless of their racial heritage, regardless of their moral culture, how are you a blessing to your neighbors? Because true godliness is the blessing of generosity to Christian and non-Christian 
alike. Now, you may think, as you think of these descriptions of true godliness, you may think, you know, I'm not really sure that my life looks like these things. I mean, occasionally I might see a glimmer of delight, maybe a glimmer of strength, maybe a glimmer of generosity here and there, but I'm not sure that I measure up. Well, you need to know that godliness looks like something else, too. It looks a whole lot like someone else's work. It looks like grace. Because gospel is, the gospel is not just a rescue as God has sent His redemption to His people. It's also a transfer. So remember, Psalm 111 is about God. And Psalm 112 is about the godly person. The second one does not exist without the first. And so on multiple occasions in these two psalms, there is a transfer of attributes from the one to the other, from Psalm 111 to Psalm 112, from the God that 111 describes to the godly that results from it. There's a transfer that happens. So Psalm 111 verse 2 says, God is gracious and merciful. 112 verse 4 says, the godly is gracious and merciful. Psalm 111 verse 7 says, God's works are faithful and just. 112 verse 5 says, the godly conducts his affairs with justice. Psalm 111 verse 9 says, God sent redemption to his people. Psalm 112 verse 4 says, the godly dawns in the darkness for the upright. On nine or ten counts throughout this psalm, what counts as true of God in Psalm 111 is attributed to the person of Psalm 112. There is a transfer that's being described here. And it's not a transfer of morality. It's a transfer of standing. It's a transfer of righteousness. And it is permanent. Psalm 111 verse 3 says, Full of splendor and majesty is God's work in his righteousness endures forever. Now that shouldn't surprise us, should it? But Psalm 112, verse 3, the same verse says, Of the godly, wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. What? This person doesn't have righteousness. He has no righteousness of his own to endure for a day, much less for forever. It's not his own. It's a, it's a transfer that's happening. And it's so much so that perhaps it's hard for us to, to accept and believe that the, the psalmist writes it again in, in 112. He repeats it. He says it twice. In verse 9, he is the godly. has distributed freely and given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. That is, if you didn't catch it the first time, you godly, catch it the second time on the way out. Your righteousness endures forever. And if his, that is, the godly, if his righteousness endures forever, then his memory does as well. Look at verse 6. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. How? Well, in Malachi, there, there is John 3.16 is a famous 3.16 verse. There's another 3.16 verse that you ought to be familiar with. In the prophet Malachi, Malachi is the last prophet in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is closing down. The prophet Malachi is wrestling with God verbally. 
he's debating with God about how they've not seen how God has been good to them, the Israelites, and God is responding and talking to them. And Malachi records this event in chapter 3, verse 16 of his prophecy. He says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. You'll see the the distinction between the righteous on the one hand and the wicked on the other, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve God. And what is that distinction? That God remembers him. That God has written his name, that God has written her name down in a book of remembrance and God remembers that person because God remembers the godly. Now, your great accomplishments will fade. Whatever it is that you strive to achieve in this life, whatever you've accomplished, however high you've climbed on the corporate ladder or whatever you've invented and sold for lots of money or however much you've blessed your neighbors and and caused them to love you and not want you to move away, all of those things will eventually fade. I mean, the epitaph on your tombstone will, over the course of time, erode and the stone will chip away and will be covered by moss and people will forget. People will forget you. Your neighbors will forget you. Your professional colleagues will forget you. Your church will forget you one day. Even your family members, generations from now, will not remember who you were. But God will never forget you. Because God never forgets the godly. You come to resemble the one that you worship. As the apostle wrote to the Corinthians, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become, what? The righteousness of God. That was not Paul's original idea. Paul got it from the Psalms. Paul had read in the Old Testament scriptures and recognized the gospel that was there even then, that there is an amazing transfer of God's attributes for ours. And by the work of Christ, God has made it to be so. Delight yourself in God's works. Delight yourself in His creation. Delight yourself in His provision. Delight yourself in His redemption for you, His people. And He will remember you forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh Lord, we pray that as we come this morning to these communion tables, that you would help us to recognize these things as true. That you would help us to see in the the poetry of this psalm the beauty of your gospel, which your apostles and your disciples recognized generations later and called out to the church. And that your word continues to call out to us with it today. Father, help us to believe. Help us to recognize in the body and blood and the bread and wine of the table the gracious salvation you have given to us in Jesus. And Father, 
Cause us to grow, to resemble you more and more and more, we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.